Hey, Cracked fans. If you're a listener of this podcast, I imagine you feel fairly similar to how I do about the latest clothing options made available across the tennis market. Now, while I won't call out any brand in particular, I will say this. Given the exorbitant nature of the latest designs, feels like you better be pretty freaking good at tennis if you want to wear that sort of clothing on the court. Now, thankfully, we here at Crack Rackets are now able to provide a far more suitable, far more comfortable, and I'm going to be honest, far more stylish option for all of our Crack Rackets fans, courtesy of our friends over at Lucky Racket. Lucky Racket uses some of the best fitting and feeling tees in the world. Their shirts are combed, ring-spun, heirloom cotton, and tri-blend Bella and Canvas. I don't even know what that means, but that sounds spectacular. So, how can you get yourself some Lucky Racket gear? It's simple. Just go to their website, luckyracket.com, that's L-U-C-K-Y-R-A-C-K-E-T.com, and use our promo code CRACK15. If you do, you'll get 15% off all of your purchases. That means 15% off the shirts, 15% off all of the incredible swag offered by our friends. Again, that's luckyracket.com. The promo code is CRACK15. Welcome to a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we continue our preview of the 2022 Australian Open. Yes, there is so much happening right now across levels in the tennis world, but let's keep in mind the year's first Grand Slam starts next week. And of course, it is our job here at Crack Rackets to prepare all of you for all of the potential eventualities. We want to talk about the men's and women's contenders. We want to talk about the dark horses, the Americans we're watching most closely. Of course, we'll break down the draws when they come out as well, but I'm on today's show, we're focusing on the men's contenders. We're going to talk about the players we think most likely, whether Djokovic is in the draw or not, to take home the Australian Open men's singles title. And joining me on today's show to do just that is a returning champion here to our Crack Rackets podcast. Of course, you may know him best as the host of Monday Match Analysis, as the host of Three, a tennis show, the president of Gil Gross Media Corporation, my (laughs) eyebrowed nemesis and friend, Gil Gross. Gil, hey, great shot. Welcome to the program, my friend. I love the fact that you were giggling during that intro. I can't tell you how reaffirming that is because I never know if people just hit skip, 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 skip through the intro. What did you think? And hey, great shot. Welcome back. Hey, great shot. Because uh, <laughs> as one says yeah. on the pod, I just want people to know, and I didn't even hear your question. Oh, do, do people listen to the intro? No, they don't. Yeah. <laughs> I just want everyone to know, though, and you shouldn't skip this. Don't skip. Alex is big timing his own podcast to go on TV. <laughs> You're you're rearranging. It's your own podcast. You're like, I can't do that. Gil, I can't do it. It's your show. What do you mean? (laughs) I mean, unbelievable. Well, 
I would just like to say, and I've made this point on other shows, this is how deep they have to go in the Rolodex right now. This is how much this story has permeated through actual news that they're like, all right, what about that cracked rackets guy, Gruskin? Can we try Gruskin? Get him on the blower. And it's like, and I'm like, yeah, of course I could do it. They're like, Alex, welcome to PBS Germany. We've got Afghanistan coming up first, Russia third, and then you're the fourth block. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? And then it's just... Again, I don't think it's me. I think it's the story. I mean, it's me. I, I, what I tell Westoff as a joke always, look, we don't talk about me enough on these shows, is that, you know, I kind of know what I'm talking about, and I'm not horrible to look at. I'm like, it's a perfect TV spot right there. It's definitely the story. <laughs> oh, I'm you know, so gross. I call well, matches on the Tennis Channel World feed now. Look, look, they're not having you on to discuss Amina Bectus. <laughs> so today I go, wait, you're not here to ask me about the International Tennis Hall of Fame not nominating someone for the first time <laughs> since 1955? Is that not why I'm here? And it got a laugh out of him because it's like my fourth time. This is, it's not a humble brag. This is me just telling a story. It's like my fourth time in the past five days or six days being on the show. And so, you know, now the guy and I kind of have a little bit of a rapport. And I was like, this is the first time. Because the first time I was on the show, first segment of the show was the decline of American democracy. Second segment on the show was a reporter on the ground in Kazakhstan. Third segment on the show was me on Djokovic. And so, like, it took every fiber of my being when he asked me the first question not to go, wait, I don't get a question on American democracy? <laughs> like, and you know how hard that was for me. I was like, low-hanging fruit. It's a 90-mile-per-hour fastball right down the center of the plate. I let it go by. This time I was like, ah, I got to throw a joke in there. Come on. They keep asking you back. You've earned the right to a joke. All of that is to say, my friend, it's good to have you back. It's great to be here. In fact, it's just – it's good to be talking to a friend. I've been doing – everything I can all day to not be on Twitter, which is what my reflex is when I'm bored and I have nothing to do. I put together like two chairs today. I'm not even joking. I put wow. together two chairs, uh, just trying to, to not be on, uh, on the bird app. So, so this is great. Are you an Ikea guy? No, this came from, um, why am I not? I don't remember. I forgot where I got this from. <laughs> But I hadn't put this chair together for like two weeks after I got it for the new apartment because I was too busy and didn't feel like it. So I was eating like standing up for two weeks mm -hmm. and I finally was like, you know, what's a good reason to put together a chair? My Twitter feed. <laughs> yeah, it's gotten a lot, you know. I have a similar story, not to one-up you, but you want to know why I'm single? It's not because I'm married to the game. It's because we have lived in this Indianapolis house for six months, and Westhoff's cousins, who happened to uh, his cousin who happens to be female, her friend, came and stayed with us because they're Georgia fans, national championship in Indianapolis. I had not had a shower curtain for the first six months of living here in Indianapolis. That is a testament to my laziness through and through. I was like, I cannot have women be in here, <laughs> staying here. You know, if it's a one-off, you can be like, oh, it broke. If they're here for three days, it's like, yo, what's the deal? And so I went and got a shower curtain. I can't emphasize how much better the experience is when you're just not worried about anything. That said, uh, the point is I totally get the – it's the strange motivations you find to do those sorts of tasks. And, yeah, that's why you're a returning champion here on these Crack Racket shows. Now, 
We're six minutes into this podcast, and I know it's something you're going to explore on three. It's something you've already explored on three, and I'm fortunate enough to be able to guest host. I have a Joel impression I've been working on that I'll unveil on the show for you. Um, But, you know, the story right now, cross tennis surrounding this Australian Open, all things Novak Djokovic. It's a Tennis Channel Podcast Network edict. We have to lead the show with at least three minutes of speculation on the topic. I'm excited to hear your take on it all on three, hear Amy's take as well. And again, listeners should go check out that show. It is a show perfectly built for something like this. I believe you guys have had immigration experts you've spoken with. You've spoken with physicians as well on the show to talk about this all from that angle. You've covered it with great depth. What is your take? Just because I know you do a lot of shepherding that show and not often editorializing. What's your take on all of it? I've done plenty of editorializing on uh, (laughs) my other YouTube channel. Yeah. Monday Match Analysis is straight editorial. (laughs) (laughs) We're not starting with Bectus. (laughs) You have a Bect... Okay, I'll do two minutes on Tara Moore and Amina Bectus and why they're the best (laughs) married doubles duo of all time. I've got Bectus takes, yeah. Or how about Jeff calling me drunk? You think you get this jawline from drinking? No, that's not what led to those predictions. What really led to those predictions is I rolled over, and to your point, what do I do when I roll over first thing in the morning? I check my Twitter feed, and I was like, oh, it's qualifying predictions day. Let me crank these out before I get out of bed, and I had hit send before I even knew what the list was. There you go. Uh, So my take is a take that normally I roll my eyes at when it comes to especially worldly issues. Like I remember recently Charles Barkley on TNT was kind of like Democrats are the worst. Republicans are the worst. They're all they're all terrible. And it's always like I find it a very cheap way to like gain everybody's approval is just to basically crap on everything. But I think in this situation, it's really hard not to do that. So I come at this from from two angles. First of all, the the way that this should have happened, and I think it's hard to disagree with this, is either Novak should have been told you may not enter Australia or Novak should have been told you may enter Australia. And for the actual process of entering with a visa and crossing the, so to speak, border, should never have been the circus that it became. And that falls on Tennis Australia because the buck stops with them. They are the shepherds. They are the chaperones. It is Craig Tiley's job to get an answer. Uh, The excuse that there was conflicting information. Yes, there was. There certainly was. Guess what? Figure it out. Like that's how this works. That's how leadership works. It's your job. And uh, it just, it didn't happen with the caveat that maybe there were some last minute changes that a Craig Tiley of the world may have not been able to see. So that's where Tennis Australia looks bad. The Australian government looks bad because I still don't know what the rule is. Uh, They, I still don't know. If I had to broadcast at the Aussie and I was hypothetically unvaccinated, I'm not, but I'm unvaccinated and I got COVID. I still don't know if I'm allowed to go. I don't know. That's where the Australian government looks terrible. And obviously, they've treated the people with the same exemptions inconsistently. You have an official, an unnamed official, and Renata Vorachova. Did I butcher that? No, did I get it? Vorachova, Vorachova. Okay, Vorachova. Obviously, a Novak, those those three people were treated differently. So now 
the government can't look good <laughs> because yeah, or they haven't Natalia applied the rules. Vilantseva, I'm butchering that last name, who takes the Sputnik vaccine, it's not approved. She's not allowed in. Sorry, just yeah. to add to that point, you're absolutely sure. right. And then Novak, my the way I look at what happened at the border, I see Novak as kind of a victim in, in what happened at the border. What happened in Serbia, not a victim. Big, you know, big mistake, something that is uh, really difficult to, to defend him on. And, and he, he isn't even defending himself. Uh, he admitted to the mistake, which is kind of nice. And then who knows kind of what else will, um, you know, will, I guess, become clear as the story develops. But everyone took a hit here and nobody looks good. I would echo that sentiment 1,000%. I would add this as well. Novak has lost the right to that victimhood, and it's such a shame that he has taken on the symbol of political martyr to an element of society to each his own. I don't think you want to be representative of, case in point, the Australian police having to deploy, uh, deploy pepper spray to break up what had become a riotous crowd who's throwing bottles, jumping on cars, smashing cars, doing all these different things. And yes, of course, so much of that is a reflection of the frustrations that have grown amongst all of us throughout these past 18 months living within this pandemic and you know making sacrifices for the sake of public health. But of course, you talk about the hypocrisies, whether it comes to the Australian government, the inconsistency, not only with the way they're treating players and unnamed line judge, but just the inconsistencies continuously that a decision has been overruled you talk about the procedural error that Novak was uh subset uh was suspect to or you know underwent of being told hey at 520 you have until 830 just kidding it's 614 we need your answer just kidding it's 742 and we're kicking out of the you out of the country it's like well wait you said I had till 830 for an answer the first time and you think think about the countless thousands millions of immigrants who that experience who experienced that in countless immigration systems across the globe who aren't Novak Djokovic, who don't have the press corp immediately discussing everything that's happening with their situation. And, you know, in, with that perspective in mind, it's hard to view Djokovic as the victim. And I think that's where so much of the resentment we've seen on tennis Twitter, sometimes why you want to log out of the app, has come from. At the same time, when you know, you know, you find out I'm at a basketball game on December 14th, that multiple people have tested positive for COVID for. I am submitting a PCR test on December 16th. A, just fundamentally, Novak Djokovic is smart enough to know I should not do this public appearance. I know how much this means to Serbia. But fundamentally, he is smart enough to realize, even if you don't believe in vaccination, that I should not be doing that if I think I am at all, even asymptomatic, but I think I am at all at risk. B, to knowingly, and even the admitting thing, and I don't care about the conspiracy theories, which was the less, the worst of, you know, the less horrible, least horrible of the terrible excuses. So I'm going to say that I did know on in the LaKeep interview that I was COVID positive and I tried to do all these things, but I didn't want to be rude to the reporter, which lol. Even if you reject all the conspiracy theories, which you should, fundamentally, once you do something like that, you lose the benefit of the doubt. And just the continued inconsistencies in his reports, the continued inconsistencies in the paperwork, the you know the fact that now Spain is wondering, did he enter the country illegally when traveling there? He has lost that benefit of the doubt. That is yeah. the fundamental issue as well. And it's funny because I continue to get asked in these TV appearances, well, how will this affect Novak Djokovic on the court? How will the Australian crowd respond to him? It's not even that at this point. 
it's for Novak Djokovic moving forward. I mean, this is the fundamental issue for him, not just at this event, but at every event, because there are other countries with this same situation. And just, I don't, I can't even think of the on-court ramifications because I just think off-court, this will continue to be a problem. Yeah, it, it very well may, especially if the pandemic doesn't turn the corner that we all hope it does. And it, when we're talking about loss of trust, I, I'd put the Adria tour in there. You have yeah. to. Uh, I would put his Instagram lives with whoever that guy, and he talked about changing water. Uh, he was skeptical about the COVID vaccine before a vaccine was conceptualized. Mm-hmm. And that is that is kind of when the doubt started that he would ever take the vaccine because it's one thing to do research on a vaccine and find certain things that make you hesitant or afraid to take it. It's another thing to say, I don't know about this vaccine when it quite literally does not exist in terms of on the court. Yeah. The, the thing is it's, it's hard to know what, what that's going to look like. Of course, Mm -hmm. with the crowd against him, it's really hard to know how he responds to that as well. It's just unfortunate that when when sports and tennis is a place that I think a lot of people like to escape. Now it's it's an unrealistic ideal. Sports and and politics are they always intersect, but particularly in tennis, by the way, the WTA yep. is littered with a history of activism. Yes, absolutely. And when it's positive, that's great. A lot of the times it is, but when it's something like this, it. Uh, I don't think that it makes anything more enjoyable for anyone. And this is the very end of an era that is really worth relishing. It is the reason why, I guess a year and a half ago, I might have the timeline even wrong, why Joel Drucker, Amy Lundy, and myself decided to start a podcast just dedicated to to these three guys. And I don't think anyone wanted this kind of stuff to be polluting Enter the the narrative to be getting involved in kind of how I think fans react emotionally to these players. But from what's happened, you can't blame anyone who sees Novak Djokovic and the first thing they think is either negative thoughts about how he's approached this pandemic, positive thoughts about how he's approached the pandemic for, for those in the anti-vaccine mandate kind of camps you can't blame anyone for looking at Novak Djokovic and seeing that I've had 64 different friends approximately text me the Novak's joke and to each of them I say dude you're the first one who's told me that that's really funny (laughs) um but it's you're right like it is forever an association now with Novak Djokovic and I told this to you before we started recording but you know, every time I'm flattered to do these TV appearances, I would love to be asked to do it to talk about the tennis, right? For the first time since 1955, the International Tennis Hall of Fame said, nope, we got no nominees for the Hall of Fame this year. And, you know, again, Djokovic is still pursuing number 21. That should be the storyline entering this event. It's not. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about the wide open field on the women's side, Naomi Osaka's health and you know, her return to form as well. Just is she still inherently the favorite at every hardcore event that she's healthy at? We don't get to have those discussions to lead the show uh, because this is the story right now. It's transcended just tennis, the tennis circles. It's in international news circles. And 
you know, that's why, again, we're contractually obliged to lead the show with it. But speaking of Djokovic's level, let's talk about the men's contenders entering this 2022 Australian Open. And, you know, I think we can put the term generational shift to bed. It's happened on the ATP Tour. (laughs) I think last year epitomized that fact. Now, you can say, well, Djokovic still won three Grand Slams. Okay, the original next-gen crew and younger won just about everything else. Whether it was Medvedev winning the Slam, Zverev winning the year-end finals, guys like Cam Nori, Kasper Ruud, Hubi Hercats, all finding success throughout the course of the year. Of course, Felix's, Dennis's of the world making Grand Slam runs, the American men, so much success across the board from Fritz all the way through to Nakashima, Brooksby, and Korda. I think the generational shift has happened, and now it's just a matter of who can seize what feels like a wide open. 2022 Australian Open, of course, three being your expertise. It's worth noting there is no Roger Federer in the draw. We don't know what we're going to see out of Novak Djokovic. Yes, we saw Rafa win the title in uh, Melbourne to kick off this season, but he's played 10 hardcourt matches in the last 52 weeks. That is not a big sample size. Can his body hold up over the course of two weeks is certainly a valid question to ask. With all of that in mind, I want to talk about the top five men's contenders at at this Australian Open. And you and I have had the conversation on this show, go back to the U.S. Open, go back to, honestly, we probably do this every time we get together, talk about Medvedev, Zverev, Djokovic, where does Tsitsipas fit in in that group? I want to save the Medvedev, Djokovic, Zverev side of this for the end. Let's start beyond that three, because I do think those three have earned the rights, and I talked about this with Jeff Sackman, If Djokovic is in the draw, it's going to be about 30%, 30% for Medvedev. Djokovic, 20% Zverev favorites, depending on where the three seed lands in the draw. Outside of those three, who I do think are comfortably the favorites, and we know Tsitsipas is coming back from elbow surgery, and, you know, there are a lot of players nipping at the bit. Who is the—if it's not one of those three, and there's no Dominic Team in the draw, there's no Milos Raonic for whatever it's worth, who's the number one guy you're looking to to win this Australian Open men's title? So I'm not feeling great about this group. I want to start with that. There's nobody nobody I look at, and I'm really even confident that they're going to be in, in a semifinal, which is kind of what you want out of a major contender, someone who it's like, yep, they're going to be in the semifinal, but can they win the last two? Uh, but there's really nobody in this group that I feel great about doing that. I still think, given what I saw, and let me be clear about something, I am confused about this man's status, but I I have to say it's Stefano Tsitsipas. If I'm really being honest with myself, head not heart, if the elbow is okay, and when he was on the court, it looked fine. The serve speeds were okay. He was he ran into an excellent Diego Schwartzman at ATP Cup, who played one of the best hardcourt matches that I've seen him play. He looked good in the early going against Nicholas Basilashvili, who promptly retired. He considered playing this week, which would have been a, a weird, weird decision, in my opinion. Again, his messaging about his elbow has been all over the place. It's amazing. It's fantastic. It's terrible. He's literally said both of those things, sometimes in a span of three days. I don't know what's going on. But assuming his elbow is okay, he has to be that fourth guy. I know it's not bold, but I don't feel great about anyone else. Tsitsipas did not have the best year end last year, losing to Tiafo, Paparin, Rublev, and you know pulling out of that tour finals. But it's worth mentioning, 32-14 and 14 last season 
on hard courts. That's a 70% win percentage. And you look at the numbers foundationally, he's holding 87.1% of the time. That's a top five number on the ATP tour. He's breaking serve 23.5% of the time, which is above the top 50 average. And for him, a significant improvement from earlier in his season. And again, even on paper, the results he put together, Australian Open semis, Miami quarterfinals, Canada semifinals, Cincy semifinals, Indian Wells quarterfinals, he showed up at the biggest events last season. And yeah, there were some sloppy losses along the way, but you know, there also were some fantastic losses. 7-6 in the third to Zverev and Cincy. That was a fascinating match. The Alcaraz mm-hmm. match, obviously, at the U.S. Open, 7-6 in the fifth. That was fascinating. Opelka, a three-set loss. Umber, three-set loss at the Olympics. Three-set loss to Hubi in Miami. You know, the loss to Zverev in the Acapulco final. He played well in just about every match he played on hard courts, even in the losses last season. Again, until we get to the very, very end of the season, it's not an unreasonable pick if if he were healthy. The question is, how healthy is he? And I do think, you know, we got to see him play twice at the ATP Cup. It's a shame the Basilevich-Vidley match got cut short. There were moments where he looked excellent against Diego Schwartzman. There were moments when he was taking his one-handed backhand early on the rise down the line, and it looked a little bit better. There were times when he was slicing the backhand with depth and a little knife where it looked like it had developed a little bit. And obviously, physically, he's continued to get better and better throughout the course of the hit the year. I mean, you were on the call for the ATP Cup. I'm sure you got to watch some of those Pass matches as well. You know, what do you think of his level? I know it's only one week, but this is the first week back from injury. And right away, he played a three-set match with Schwartzman where it just felt like, yeah, it was a little sloppy, but it wasn't that sloppy. Right. I just thought he got tired in that match. And yes. that might be about his buildup and his training coming in. So I kind of I kind of throw it out. Also, it was it was very, very physical. And Schwartzman is someone who makes matches that way. It's just what he does and how he wins. Ultimately, here's how I saw Tsitsipas. His strengths were still really, really, really good. He didn't look like a different player to me. He didn't look like someone whose backhand slice was suddenly a strength or his backhand return was suddenly a strength or his defense on that side, but unbelievably physical and explosive, a really good serve, especially the second serve, which remains super underrated and not talked about enough. The forehand being a way to create instant offense from anywhere on the court reliably, all of these things that make him the player that he is still great. And I feel like he was playing hurt for a lot of last year and a lot of the hard court results that you just went through were kind of tainted, a little bit marred, I think can be kind of thrown out the window because I just don't think he was 100%. And who's to say he's 100% now? It's very possible he's not. But again, I just didn't see much evidence outside of what he said in the press room and outside of deciding not to play the singles in Greek's first tie. Outside of that, I didn't see much evidence that there was anything wrong. Fair. And again, I agree with you. I thought he looked tired, not physically incapable of performing in that match against Schwartzman. And to me, that was the most definitive injury uh, takeaway. Structurally, foundationally, I thought he looked fine in that match. And now mm-hmm. he's had a couple of weeks to train in Australia. I know we talk about this every time. 
on hard courts and on this event particularly, given his health, he is a tier below Medvedev and Zverev, right? And that changes once we're on the clay courts, but he is probably the start of that second tier. You know, if you want to have Djokovic, Medvedev 1A, Zverev 1B, that's fine. I have them all in one collective tier, but he's, you know, I do think he's a tier two contender. He's not my top contender, but he's, he is in that tier two, right? Right. And if I could add, his draw is going to matter a lot. If he runs into a guy like a couple years ago, now he won't run into this particular dude, but uh, Riley, uh, sorry, Milos Raonic. Uh, Mm -hmm. If he, a couple years ago, he runs into Raonic. I think anyone who kind of understands where Tsitsipas's return was at at that time and what kind of level Raonic was playing at, despite their disparity in rankings, that, that was an upset alert. I think the same thing can happen this year if Tsitsipas happens to be drawn with a Riley Opelka or potentially a John Isner or later on a Hubert Hercotch, someone who serves incredibly big and is going to pressure that backhand and come forward. Look out for the draw. Look out for the big servers. If I want to drop someone who's unseated, like an Alexi Popperin, who can definitely challenge the return, uh, these are going to be some dangerous matchups potentially for Tsitsipas. But I still look at him as a guy, and we we agreed on this before the U.S. Open. If you don't serve big, you're not really going to beat him unless you're Novak Djokovic. Yeah. I have six guys who I wanted to bring up on this podcast. We're not going to talk about them all in depth. I have Tsitsipas fourth on my list of six guys. And again, that doesn't include Djokovic, Medvedev, Zverev. Uh, I, I, again, he's in that tier two for me. But you talk about some of the guys he'll want to avoid. I think Yannick Sinner's got to be number one on the list. And it is worth noting, you look at the odds from our friends over at DraftKings right now. Djokovic plus 130, Medvedev plus 180, Zverev plus 320. You then have a drop, Nadal plus 850, Tsitsipas, big drop, 18 to 1. Sinner, 20 to 1. You then get Rublev, 30, Berrettini, 35, Alcaraz, Felix, 40 to 1. After that, you know, Chapo, Murray sort of tier. I, there's a reason Sinner's number six on the list. You look at the numbers for him last season on hard courts, they are particularly outstanding, Gil. And you look for him again, overall, Yannick Sinner, uh, 42 and 14 last year on hard courts. It's a 75% win percentage above his 70% over the last 52 weeks. He also held serve 84.1% of the time. increase over his uh, Holt percentage overall. He breaks serve 26.4% of the time, so no compromise there. That's a top 15 sort of number, and, you know, again, foundationally, I think you look at his game, he was the one guy who had felt like had the weapons, him and Berrettini, to hit, and, you know, at times, Hercots, to hit through those courts at the ATP Cup, and the way he just, I know there were some 7-6 sets, but the way he just earned his straight set victories comfortably. It just felt like he is now ready to crush the people he's supposed to crush. And you look at the big number for him and why he's number one on my list. You know, he was eight and four against the top 20 last season on hard courts. And you look at those four losses, loses to Medvedev in three sets at the tour finals, loses to Zverev in straights, but four, four and six at the U.S. Open, two and four to Medvedev in Marseille, and then the five-set loss to Shapovalov in Australia last year. Of course, that came after he had won a title in the week leading up to the Australian Open. Notable that he is not playing any tennis here this week. He's a top 12 seed for the first time at a Grand Slam in his career, and I think he's thoroughly earned that mark. I also just think all signs are pointing to him continuing to take another step forward. I swear to God you can draw a connective thread 
to his loss in Vienna to Tiafo and the energy he now plays with today. There is I heard his voice for the first time in the ATP Cup. I heard him get excited. And man, is that version of Sinner scary. Like I in an open draw, don't you lean towards the young guys or the ones who, you know, don't know any better? Like we've seen Bautista Goot, you know, fiddle fizzle out at a quarterfinal, a semifinal. We've seen Carino Busta there. A we've dangerous- also seen them make semis though. That's true, but like are, are we talking about getting to that round? I just I like the unknown. I, again, I I think the game is ready. I think mm-hmm. mentally he's ready, and I don't think there's any sort of mental block in those final stages for him. I guess that's what I'm trying to say is I think he gets okay. there and he plays best tennis. Okay, I'm not convinced about that. I wouldn't I wouldn't refute it, of course, because we don't know how people who have never been in that spot are going to respond. And I mean, quite frankly, you mentioned the. The lost in Adal at Roland Garros, the lost to Zverev at the U.S. Open. I don't know how much pressure even came into play. It was just outclassed because none of those matches were close. I would like to see him get dragged into deep waters by a player who he's not thoroughly better than and kind of see how he reacts. I'm yet to really see that. You, you of course, have the five-set loss to Chapo at the Aussie. At the U.S. Open, he went five, but uh, twice. Wait, no, was this fight a match four? Yeah, that was four. Uh, but he goes five to Monfils. He's a better player than Monfils. Um, I, I need to see the major, I need to see the best of five set center dragged into the trenches and come out the other side. So just quickly to refute that. Yeah. Herk- he beats Hercots last year, two or final, straight sets. Beats Rude yeah. in Vienna. Beats Schwartzman in Antwerp. Beats Monfils in Sofia. Notable about all of those matches, played indoors. And of course, with his firepower, quicker court, Look out. Now, of course, yep. his movement gets better and better with every season. His body, the physicality continues to develop. It is worth noting to me, he beat Bautista Goot three sets, Dubai and Miami last year. And I know Bautista Goot wasn't playing particularly well then. He's playing extraordinarily well now. But I, I like those sorts of wins do matter. Matchup, though. I, you're right, but I do. You're right, and that's he's one of. The, it's hilarious that he's one of the rare guys who matches up well with Roberto Bautista Gut. But I do think it's worth mentioning. You look for Yannick Sinner in his career in Grand Slams. Uh, you know, overall here, and he's three and five versus the top twenty. But he is fourteen and nine in Grand Slams. Like we've seen him make a quarterfinal. We've seen right. him make two other round of sixteens. He's gotten pretty consistent in the early rounds of slams. These are good stats. I, I like it. I like that he's good against the top 10 on hard courts or the top 20. I think you said eight and four yeah. last year. That's awesome. Like that's a really meaningful stat. I do think he's better indoors than outdoors at the moment, as you alluded to. And again, I'm high on him. I like him. But if if you look at like, for example, how we played in the Miami final right now, that's the biggest match of his life. I, I don't think it's fair to judge anyone on one match, but right now that's the biggest match of his life. He didn't show up in that match. That was far below how well he can play. So I'm not in a position where I think that there's a, an issue mentally. I just don't know if I would check the box with a green magic marker when it comes to, I know that you're going to show up, play your best tennis, be ready to go five. If it gets really tough, hard, physical, that he's going to come out of that at the moment. But yeah, I am high on him. And I think that you can't ignore the trajectory. We've been on this for a while. And also, I agree with you about how the Tiafo match changed him. We've both been on that as well. He gets better 
so consistently. You can't ignore that. It's uh, it's hard to imagine that stopping anytime soon. And I'm excited for, for what he does this year, starting with next week. To add to your point, he's playing for a spot to qualify at the Tour Finals. Loses that three-setter to Tiafo. Loses straight sets first round in Paris. Loses mm-hmm. straight sets first round in Stockholm. Now, Alcaraz and Murray played ba- great in both of those matches, but I think that does add to your point. I want to see him perform with some pressure on the line. He'll have that pressure. Now, he had it against Chilich in the Davis Cup quarterfinals. Wins that match, come from behind, three-set victory. That was a sign in a good direction, and the fire he played with at ATP Cup. Sign of him, again, turning a leaf there, and I do think that fire will help him on that stage. But it is, you know, and I guess last question on him. Is he in your top five? No. Is he in your top five if you remove the top three? Um, I don't think so. He might come in at number five. I did write down players. Uh, I don't think he is. <laughs> you didn't I, give I don't me think flashcards? Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I have I have Medvedev and Zverev in here. Um, okay. Yeah, he's going to get in the top five. Okay, I, but he's lower is what you're telling me. So you're slightly lower on him than I am. Yeah, I'd like to see him. I'd like to see a little bit more from him in best of five. Mm-hmm. No, it's fair. Be- before. No, no, you might be ahead of me, right? You might just, again, the, the past doesn't always predict the future. I just haven't seen enough. Well, let me be clear. When Carlos Alcaraz does win that first Wimbledon title, I will make the, sure the world <laughs> knows that you were on that before anyone else. <laughs> But all right, it, with that in mind, who was five on your original list? Beyond the top three, who was your fifth guy? My fifth guy, I feel I feel kind of weird about this. Can I get a because... drum roll, Westoff? I'm, I'm like kind of curious here <laughs> who your fifth guy might be. If you would have told me that I would have been in this spot Three months ago, I would have called you absolutely nuts, but my guy is Felix. Welcome to the family, my friend. He is on my list as well, but I want to hear your case. Long term, there's still so much that it's very clear he can improve, Mm -hmm. but he showed me at the ATP Cup everything that I could have really wanted him to show. First of all, the first serve is such an underrated weapon. It is so good. It is probably top 10 in men's tennis, and it gets him really far on any quick court in hot weather especially. When Felix plays in the daytime in Australia, I like that first serve to be so effective, and obviously he hits his forehand behind it so, so well. At ATP Cup, he showed me patience and shot tolerance, and he also showed me a lot of physical endurance and fitness. That was always kind of besides the consistency and the transition game, which still isn't always there, just in terms of being confident and keeping the ball in the court by not going for too much and having disciplined shot selection. I saw that from Felix. And then more importantly, I saw him deal with pressure and you and I noticed that he was doing that better and better in the majors, making that Wimbledon quarterfinal, making that U.S. Open semifinal. You kind of knew it was coming where Felix was going to get over the hump despite still being technically 0-8 in finals, get over the hump of when he's in the pressure cooker, not falling apart. ATP Cup, I'm sorry, he did that. Against Zverev, 
He, Zverev had nothing to play for in that third tie, Canada-Germany. Nothing. Felix had to win, or they could have gone to the doubles, but Felix had to win in the singles to put Canada through to the elimination stage. Felix won that match against a guy who hadn't lost to anyone, best of three on a hard court, other than Djokovic, Medvedev, and Taylor Fritz when he relapsed in double faulting. He served for that match, right? Then in the final... He also seals the deal against Roberto Bautista Gut, who is playing incredible. And how did he beat Roberto Bautista Gut? He literally broke him down physically. He got to the legs. That's how well he was sustaining aggression and making his opponent run by moving his forehand and his backhand to a lesser extent, but still around the court. I mean, I just, again, he impressed me out of 10, a 10, and I got to put him here because, again, I'm not feeling awesome about anyone else. So after that performance from Felix, he's my guy. The jump is coming. I know he doesn't have an ATP title, but let's be clear. Last year at the Slams, Australian Open, round of 16, two sets to love up on Karatsev. Now he loses that match and then goes to Roland Garros, loses in four sets to Seppi. Still, quarterfinals Wimbledon, four-set loss to Berrettini. Semifinals US Open, straight-set loss to Medvedev. It gets better and better, and you're right. I test-wise, passes with flying colors with his performance at the ATP Cup. The heaviness of his inside-out forehand rally ball when he is in that ad corner, there's nothing you can do because you don't want to press him down the line because if you don't hit the shot perfectly, now he can go behind you. And he, there is so much weight behind his forehand that if he sneaks that forehand behind you, even if you get a racket on it, 95% of the time you're losing the point because now he's got a, a second forehand from an offensive position and you lose. If you hit to the forehand corner tentatively and try to find the backhand and aren't able to do it, eventually he's going to find the inside-in forehand. And he hits that ball with so much depth and so heavy that he's going to get a second approach forehand or he's going to get a forehand volley and he's a comfortable and willing volleyer and you're going to lose. I also think he's getting better at moving to that ad side corner. I think he's always been fluid moving to his right, but he has gotten better hitting that backhand on the run. And the rally ball backhand has never been an issue, but it's gotten better and better. The depth, the pace, the heaviness of the shot. And again, the ear test, sonic booms, whenever he connects with the ball cleanly. You're right, that forehand so heavy, and you look for him over the last 52 weeks, he's holding 83.8% of the time. That number would be a top 25 number on the ATP Tour. Uh, of course, you look at the break percentage, 20.8. That number's too low. It should be better. And I think he's gotten better, A, finding forehands on the return of serve, but B, being comfortable saying, you know what, I don't need to do that. I can be comfortable swinging through my backhand. And, yeah, you're right. I think the ace, uh, the plus one ball, his, his you know, plan A projects out to be a top 10 sort of plan A on the ATP Tour. He has mm-hmm. those sorts of weapons. B, C, and D get better. He's number nine right now in the rankings, 21 years old, on the growth curve. I know he still doesn't have an ATP title, though we can debate if the ATP Cup one counts, but you're right. Like, he broke Bautista Agut, who I'm going to get to, who was on my list. Felix is second amongst the non-top three players. Sinners four, Felix five. If he plays his best, it's just on his terms. Doesn't matter if it's against Nori, doesn't matter if it's against RBA, against Zverev. Now, Medvedev beat him down at the ATP Cup, no doubt. But he was on his terms against everyone else. Fritz played lights out ball in that first match. I'm on Team Felix. Like this is the year. I we I will be shocked. Some of the takes you can put in stone for me. Westoff, write this down. A, 
Fritz will not end this year without making a fourth round at a Grand Slam. That drought is going to end for him in his career. B, That's a layup. Yeah, and Felix is going to win an ATP title. Like, those are two layup predictions. Lock, mm-hmm. If I'm doing a Wertheim 50 things column, <laughs> that's like 17 and 26 on my 50 things. Yeah, I agree with you. Again, it's my only hesitation is recency bias and overreaction because I know that I was just not even close to being this high on him three months ago. And that scares me, but it is what it is. See, I was this high on him three months ago, so I am not scared. He's been one of my locks, and he's the youngest guy, yeah. challengers, ATP wins, matches played, et cetera, et cetera. It's, the group is him, Nadal, Djokovic, Alcaraz, Del Potro, Gasquet, like, and Tomic. Those are you're going to find all the records for as teenagers. I mean, if you're, you are Bernard Tomic, I don't know how good or bad that life may be, but it's all pretty solid scenarios. Like, if the lowest, if your floor is Gasquet, top 10, if your ceiling's one of the other guys— grand slam champion and so i think his ceiling is like that of the other guys again with the openness of this field he is one of the guys who's made a a grand slam semifinal recently quarterfinal runs recently and so i like that fact as well all right after this things get funky and we'll get back to the top three again at the end i'm gonna throw some other names at you on my list okay number three it's a hot take i know but if you go back as recently as 2020 in 2020 gill who led the ATP in break percentage on hard courts? I know it's a very specific question, but who led the ATP in break percentage on hard courts? He is number three on my non-top three list. This is since 2020? No, in 2020. Oh, in 2020. Oh, so I have to go back two years? Two years. That's right. Let's turn that memory machine on. You're still young enough to do that. Diego Schwartzman. Good guess. Roberto Bautista Agut. Okay. Who, if... No, you know what? With all due respect to Felix and Hubi and all the guys, even though he lost that last match, Bautista Gut was my most impressive performer of the ATP Cup. Oh my God, is he fit as a fiddle right now. And like, again, we talked about this, I think when you came on the mini break a couple of weeks ago, talking about the ATP Cup, Generation Meh, I believe I referred to it. If there's ever an opening for that generation, it's right now. And I'm just saying, Medvedev has always had terrible matchup issues with Bautista Gut. Physically, mm-hmm. he is just going to make you work. He is not going to beat himself. He baits you into challenging that forehand to where he can hit it on the run, down the line, cross court, a top five on the run forehand, in my opinion, on the ATP Tour. Nothing, by the way, highlight uh, is a highlight in my day more than when you text me a random top five question, which <laughs> is just because you know I'll always have an answer. Um, but, I, like, is is there a case for Bautista Gut? I mean, maybe not to win the thing, but maybe to win the thing? That's the weird part about putting him because, first of all, I love this pick and he's in my five. Yeah. And I agree with you that nobody looked more eye-poppingly better prepared. than Roberto Bautista. Eye-poppingly prepared for the season. Right. Yes. And and this is not new. If you look at his numbers in in January, and I had them specifically when I was uh, when I was doing his matches at TC, but basically his record against top twenty players and top ten players in January is significantly better than it is in the rest of the months. He has four titles since 2016 in the month of January. And two of those years were lost years because he was playing ATP Cup and then Australian Open. So he didn't really have a chance to win a title. He has been so good. You remember that year in Doha. He has been so good when he's played Auckland. 
And I think the explanation is one being physically fresh coming off the heels of the off season and he plays a physical style and I think he's just ready to grind and ready to suffer. And two, where does he get his confidence from? Some players might need to win four matches before they're feeling themselves. Bautista Gut just needs to train and then he's feeling himself. So it's just the way he's wired. It's different. And compared to his results in the early season in, in January specifically, Australian open has been a little bit underwhelming. He hasn't been bad round of 16 in 2017 quarterfinal in 2019 really shocking first round loss to Radu Albert last year, but it's been a little bit underwhelming. A lot of round of 16s in Australia over the years. I can't see that continuing. Like even though he's 34, it's just not sustainable that he's this good in January and that Australian open run is just going to continue to elude him. It just seems unrealistic. And I just feel like there's going to be some regression here. And I, I like RBA as, as one of the guys who can definitely make the, the weekend, but it, you're right. It feels weird because as good and as high as we are on him, it's really difficult to see him actually winning. Roberto Bautista Gut last season it was the first season of significant statistical regression. Hold percentage, 78.3%. That's his lowest since 2013. Break percentage, 25.8.7 below his career average. You know, first serve win percentage was down. Second serve win percentage was down. And, you know, he is 33 years old, turns 34 in April. That's technically where the downside should be of his career. Uh, you're giving me a finger up. Do you see this breaking news? Yeah, I was about to break into it, by the way. Draw ceremony delayed at the Australian Open as we wait for more news about Novak Djokovic, or do we have more news on Djokovic? No, no but but I see Ben tweeted delayed. Stu Frazier tweeted canceled until further notice. Really? Okay, well, I mean, three is going to be that much more interesting tonight. So, <laughs> I, yeah, think, again, I think three this... might be delayed until further notice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're recording this Wednesday, 11, 12 p.m. Uh, so, again, you're getting the live reaction. That's, by the way, the least shocking bit of news. They do not want to make the draw until they know Novak Djokovic's status. Justifiably so, by the way, because if we can get Medvedev Zverev on opposite sides of the draw competitively, that's what they want to wait to do. Uh, as opposed to withdrawing him, moving people around, doing all that sort of funky stuff. Anyways, get to that in a second. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you have a take? We're on it now. I, is this surprise <laughs> you? It doesn't. I mean, Craig Tiley, everything yes. about Craig Tiley. I think when you look back at the 2022 Australian Open, the story will be delayed. Like, that, this is a great storyline. 2022 Australian Open tagline delayed. If it were a, a book? If it were, yeah, or a news chiron. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I I find this to be strange and I I'll just say what what you just said makes sense, but it's kind of the the unwritten rule that nobody follows but everyone pretends to follow is that like you don't just change the way you operate because of one player. To Miney Cario confirming breaking the Australian Open draw has been canceled <laughs> until further notice. That's such a weird word for something that is essential for the tournament. No it, draw postponed. <laughs> We're done. Craig's like sitting in – you know what it is? Is Craig's been sitting in those immigration th rooms, and he's just like, F I'll do it by hand. He's like, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm picking the matchups. Wait, wait. I just don't – this doesn't make – you can't cancel a draw. That can't be the word. It's you canceled. We're not doing it. There is no, no that's a, anarchy. That's a, 
that's a postponement. If it's going to happen in the future, then it's a postponement. Canceled until further notice is not a thing. So if we're canceling the draw, how does this help Sinner's case? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me why. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this Australian Open, I'm waiting for the text. Hey, you got another TV hit in you? Um, we got to talk about the draw being canceled. Yeah, it's cancel culture, man. Everything's canceled nowadays. You know, people, draws. Um, it is uh, It is something. Uh, by the way, I was my senior year of high school, tryouts for club tennis. I was extraordinarily bored in one of my lectures. And so I did a 32 draw by hand. And it was so enjoyable making the seeds and being like competitively, oh, this makes sense. This is balanced. This is not. <laughs> so if that's what Craig Tiley wants to do here, I get the thinking. Um, but yeah, certainly this is a surprise. With all that said, just to finish the thought on Bautista Agud and who freaking knows where we were. Yeah, there was statistical regression last season, but you know he did end up sneaking in an early season title in Montpellier. Made the final in a uh, final, excuse me, Montpellier made the final in Doha as well. Semifinals Miami. So we've seen him have strong starts to the year. Of course, you look for him throughout the course of his career. He has made Grand Slam quarterfinals in the past, the last time he was able to do it. All the way back, 2019 Wimbledon made a quarterfinal, 2019 Australian Open as well. That 2019 Wimbledon, his only semifinal of his career at the Slams. So he's another guy. I want to do two quickly and then again get to the top three guys. And we can run through this guy pretty fast. I think there's a world where Hoobie wins this. Like, I'm not – the guy who's going to be, like, the unknown, right? And that's going to be such a popular pick because he did it in Miami and he just made a Wimbledon semifinal. But, like, there's a world where Hoobie does it, right? Where he pulls a Johansson, pulls, like, a Gaudio. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I I would have to put myself back in that time and remember, like, exactly what the level of shock was. And sure. honestly, I bet the shock – from what I would gather, and again, I'm not a great source on this, the shock was a little bit more for those guys than it would be for Hubie. I, I'd actually like to give him a little bit more credit, right? He's a Masters, I agree. 1, 000, he's a Masters 1000 champion. Yeah. He he has a lot of really great wins. Like if you look at his 2021, the problem was the weird first and second round losses. The problem was not that he couldn't make runs because obviously he had that Wimbledon semifinal, one Miami, one Delray, one Mets. Delray and Mets are not the Australian Open, but point stands. Hubie, I really liked what I saw from him in ATP Cup. And it's not that he looked like a world beater and he played his best tennis. It's what he was trying to do. I had a singular wish for Hercotch this offseason. And it was to start accelerating and going after a forehand from the back of the court. And he's, I, I think he gets it. And that's a credit to, to him and and Craig Boynton, and they seem to have such a good relationship, as you know, as their close personal friend. <laughs> he just knows what he needs to do. Does that make sense? So, like, yeah. he was he was staying back too much early in his career, and that was clear because he was this awesome volleyer with ground strokes that weren't overly penetrating. So it's like, dude, you gotta you gotta move forward. Like, use your talent, move forward. And and what have we seen from him in the last six months? Man net rushes whenever he can. So he figured that out. And now he's starting to figure out the forehand. I think that there's some some trust issues with it. He doesn't fully believe in himself, but he's trying. That's so good because if he gets hot and he starts feeling good and he has the serve and the movement, he quite literally is kind of Medvedev 
Albatross. Did I pronounce that right? Close enough, I would say. Like it's a, it's a- kind a- of Albatross. A, yeah, no, yes, Albatross is. You know, you went to Newhouse. You tell me. Um, I I, I, yeah. I don't I, I don't think I've ever used that word to be honest. But that's that's what I'm, I'm going just, for. I'm surprised you're not calling it, you know, Sarbanes Oxley here, or you're not calling it. <laughs> what's the um? Oh, what's the other one? Oh my God, it's gonna bother me that I'm not. I'll remember the term as we go on. But sorry, didn't mean to interrupt can, you. Well, let, let's just can we define it for the viewers? How what percent of the population is is with me on that word? Because I never use it. Because I don't oh. think you're I, I don't to a hear crew it that, much. that was ready for two minutes on Amina Bectus. So we're a, right. You know, we're a well-rounded crew. No, what's the uh? Oh my God, it's gonna bother me so much. The term I'm looking for. Um, oh my. Oh, you you've moved the. Uh, oh, it's it's when you change the framework of a debate. You've. Um, oh man, this is gonna bother me. I'm sorry, Mom. I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry, Mrs. Pritchard. I'm sorry, all the teachers out there who I'm embarrassing right now throughout my tenure. When you've moved the. Um, oh my God. Anyways, keep going. I'll remember it as we go. But in terms of the albatross, I get what you're saying. Yes, on Hoobie Hurricots. And, you know, again, I think the forehand for him, it's sort of Tiafo-ish, especially on the return, right, where that's where the backswing gets him in trouble, and that's where he's chipping returns instead of hitting through him. That's why the break percentage still has him bottom 10 amongst top 50 players. Um, yeah, that's why Hoobie's on this list, though, because he can serve his way into tiebreakers and he has all of the skills to do plans b c and d it's just about getting more consistent at them and i think we saw that consistency at the atp cup i thought he played very well yeah i'm i'm with you i'm high on him yeah it's just it's just that like before the year i picked him to be the guy and this was very hard for me to do but if you're Predicting the top 10, which, by the way, is that an exercise that you've done? Not yet. I'm saving it till post-Australian. No, <laughs> I, I think I, we definitely did it on one of the preseason pods. Okay. It's a very difficult exercise to do this year for a very simple reason. You have Djokovic and Nadal, and then you have all guys 25 years of age or younger, which means in order to predict the top 10, you're either predicting the same 10 guys or you're booting out someone who should be getting better because they're young, or Djokovic and Nadal, who are hard to boot out of the top 10 if you're predicting it. Herkoc was the guy who I went with because I did feel I do feel like the distribution of his rankings points leaves a little bit to be desired. And the level that he was at in 2021, if you just take a couple tournaments at, at, uh, out of it, he wasn't at a top 10 level week in and week out. And I think there are, he's beatable from the baseline, which quite frankly, I don't love for a top 10 player considering how much of the modern game is played from the baseline. And he was the odd man out for me because of the forehand, because of just the regular kind of play from neutral that I don't love as much for Hercotch. I, I like him on the front foot. I like him serving and hitting approach shots and honestly defending his movements. Amazing. So it, it's weird for me to say this, but yes, I really liked what I saw from him at ATP Cup, and I'm very high on him coming into Australia. Well, I agree with you. Well, one last guy we haven't talked about, Rafa, and I'm yeah. sure you've talked about it at three. Was he at all consideration for your list? Why did you leave him off? Where would you have him? Yeah, he's he's for me after Felix Hercoc. He's ahead of Bautista Gut. He's okay. after Felix Hercoc and Tsitsipas. So he's sixth of my non-top three guys, so he'd be ninth overall. But why do you have him a little higher? 
I have them. Well, I, I don't consider that high for him. Right. Yeah. But, but yeah, I, I guess we both don't have that much faith. In Move the Overton window. Thank God I remember that term. Sorry. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but it, like it just popped in my head. Oh, thank you. Memory. You shifted the Overton window in a debate, right? Is when it used to be talked, you talk about like, you know, now it's the debate in particular for the filibuster, right? It was this uncouth thing to discuss. Now we're discussing it as a term in the Senate, you know, for advancing voting rights, all these things. Changing the Overton window. That's what I was looking for, Gil. Carry on. (laughs) (laughs) On Rafa, the Overton window has shifted. He's no longer a locked-in contender, right? There it is. That's how I work it in. You proud of yourself? You have no idea. Like, (laughs) you can see the smile on my face, how happy I am to still have some semblance of a memory. Mrs. Pritchard, that was for you. Carry on. (laughs) (laughs) Look, if you you listen to the things that Carlos Moya has described about what the last five months have been for Rafael Nadal, it's just it's hard to have a lot of faith that he's going to be 100%. And we've reached a point now where it's very clear, especially on a hard court. If you don't have 100% Rafa, there are going to be a lot of guys who can now beat him on a hard court. That is the era in which we are at. Is Nadal in the mix when he when he's at his best on a hard court? Absolutely. Can he still win big titles? I think so. But 90% Nadal is not, is not going to sneak into the final anymore. He's going to get picked off by someone like Tsitsipas like he did last year. And the biggest thing that makes me nervous is I don't think that he is confident in himself because similar to Roberto Bautista Agut, he draws his confidence from preparation and training. And when he's short on it, yes, he's come back from injuries well in his career, but that's, I think, a separate thing. Right now, it's just been a lot of, in recent history, it's been a lot of, first of all, missed time on hard courts, missed reps, missed match play, but also moments where he's uncharacteristically unclutch. And I think he needs to get more matches in and more training and be at a hundred percent for him to kind of just break out of that. I think he needs a big win on a hard court pretty desperately because it's just the third, like the third set tiebreaker against Tsitsipas, the loss to Rublev, in Monte Carlo last year. What we saw just last week in Melbourne, serving for the match twice and being broken. I just feel like Nadal's a little bit too insecure right now. And I have no doubt that he's going to shake it, especially when he hits the clay and he draws his confidence from just feeling the dirt under his feet or however that works. Mm -hmm. It's, I, again, it's just hard to see him playing his best tennis next week and the week after. It's interesting because look at the numbers. 49 on hard courts in 2017, that's an 82% win percentage. 14 and 2 in 2018, 88%. 31 and 3 in 2019, 91%. 18 and 6 in 2020, 75%. 5 and 2 last year wins the tournament to start this season, although it doesn't play a top 50 player. By the way, we agree the Cressy backhand's just like good. Right? Like, I don't ever <laughs> want to see him slice a backhand again because when he can lean into it, and Rafa's ball was right in his strike zone, it's the first time, like, being 6'5 and him, it was just like perfect. He's like, I don't have to put topspin on the ball. Oh my God. Um, but, like, there is a noticeable decline in his on court product. The ball just doesn't rip through the court the way it once did for him on hard courts. And, and I'm sure in practice it does. I just yeah. want to say that this is. 
This is what we've seen from Nadal throughout his career. We saw it in 2015 when he wasn't a very good player. Just basically brushing up on the ball, max RPMs. That's the weird thing about Nadal. And I I can't like 100% confirm this. We would need Hawkeye. But the weird thing about Nadal is he's so good because of the RPM he generates. But the more RPM he's generating, the worse a sign it is for how well he's playing. Because if he he's not confident in flattening out the forehand, that's when you lose one of the greatest weapons in the history of men's tennis is when he's just brushing up on it and not getting through the court because it's just it's all topspin, no pace. Yeah, completely fair. It is worth mentioning quarterfinals of the Australian Open last year where he loses in five sets to Tsitsipas. When he's healthy, he can still produce the level as those num- numbers for his results show on the hard court. Seems to be healthy. And I was at the Lloyd Harris match last year in D.C., the Jack Sock match. I don't think he played particularly poorly. I just don't think he was healthy. He wasn't moving as well as Rafa needs to move to play his game style. I probably have him a little too low for him to be below Hercots, below Bautista Agut on my list. But he's not top tier. Like, he's not one of the top three guys. He is in that second tier with the Tsitsipas' sinners, that caliber of player now, just because we haven't seen him frequently enough on the hard courts. Of course, that said, if he's in the quarterfinals and he's only played one match more than three sets on his way to get there, like how can you doubt Rafa at that yeah, point of the tournament? I, I will say, and I'm Draw not just saying that because he lost in the quarterfinals. True, true, because he might be a little bit vulnerable early on. But it's really, in Australia, the way it's gone in recent years is he's been tearing through the early rounds. He's been looking amazing. And then someone just is able to make it a little bit more physical and able to put him in these pressure spots. I think if you look at the last two years, the the weirdest thing about Nadal is he's just lost a little bit of clutch. There's a lot of losses that he has that he's taken that I just don't think he, I don't think he should have because he was in winning positions. He just needs to break that again. I do think it'll happen, but he he's in that rut. Like if you just look at his recent losses, he's, a lot of them are not good in terms of in terms of him being ahead and blowing leads. Fair. Also, I would just like to point out for all of you listeners, Gil Gross via nine minutes ago, so 11-19. <laughs> Here's my take. Something can't be canceled until further notice. The word is postponed. Didn't even say workshop this tweet while on the Great Shot Pod. No citation. He's ready for Wikipedia. I'm devastated, but impressive that you can pot and tweet. That's a skill all of us develop, by the way, over the course of the years. Another development, the reason I was on Twitter is I got this notification. Prime Minister Scott Morrison will hold a press conference in 25 minutes. Whether that has anything to do with the Djokovic situation, I don't know. However, insinuations that it may be about the Djokovic situation, so we may have another development on our hands shortly. With that said... Final part of this conversation. We're an hour, five minutes in. We haven't brought up Zverev, Djokovic, Medvedev. Who are your three favorites according to the betting odds? Obviously, Djokovic and Zverev play a five-set semifinal last year. Zverev wins the Olympic gold medal. Medvedev wins the U.S. Open title. Medvedev, Djokovic played in the final of this Australian Open last year. They've been the guys on the hard courts. They are the three favorites by any metric you want to turn to. With that said, give me your order with the three of them. Again, even I think it shouldn't matter if Djokovic is playing or not, obviously. But give me your where you're at with the three of them. Uh, I you know, I haven't even I haven't even thought about this. Weirdly, it's not it's the thing I would usually think of. 
Maybe it's the Djokovic stuff. I don't know. Well, I think like, it's because what, what we've even had tennis? this conversation for the last four months of the 2021 season. Like we, this was again. Why did I save it to the last? And I'm not trying to be coy with the listeners or rude, but we have had this conversation like seven on your last seven podcast appearances, Gil, and that's because we're predisposed right. to talking about it. But it was the conversation. Can I do like a, a triangle here? Please. I think the triangle right now heading into the tournament is I like Djokovic's chances to beat Medvedev if they play. I think tactically there's a lot of stuff that Novak understands about the matchup and can execute. And the U.S. Open was just a case of, again, a lot of uh, mental and physical factors that put him at a huge disadvantage. I still like Novak in that matchup. If Zverev plays Djokovic, I feel like, I feel like Alex feels really good right now about that. And I think that's a matchup that Zverev is ready to win potentially with the pressure off of him and some of the wins, the big wins that he's had recently against Novak and the way he's been the aggressor from the baseline in that matchup and, and using his serve. So I think Zverev can beat Novak, but then I, I give Medvedev the edge over Zverev. I think especially mentally and tactically a little bit. I know that Zverev got the win in the, ATP final, but that aside, I think that that matchup has been decidedly Medvedev. I think a lot of that has to do with with mental stuff when they meet as peers, and that's kind of my triangle. Yeah, you've been in LA one month. You've already adopted the triangle, Phil Jackson. Congratulations to you. <laughs> You're also clearly ready to take the LSAT with those if then statements. I mean. I think it's a really good argument to make. Like it's, a, I I would argue Zverev getting that win at the Tour Finals over Medvedev was actually so critical for him just to get over that six match losing streak and just a reminder. Hey, hey, I can still beat this guy. I mean, I would call them all co favorites. I know the numbers say Djokovic Medvedev slight edge, but I would agree with you. It just depends where everyone ends up in the draw. And again, Zverev doesn't lose prior to fourth rounds, prior to quarterfinals anymore at Grand Slams. Medvedev doesn't do it at hard courts either, and Djokovic is freaking Djokovic. I will say the favorite is whoever isn't on the same side of the draw as the other two. Like that yep. is inherently the favorite, in my opinion. And it, that's how thin the margins are, even with Djokovic coming off of a three slam year. And I don't think that has anything to do with like fatigue, which a lot of people or the immigration stuff. Like, of course, now it has to do with the immigration stuff. But that would have been my take, even if he had gotten into the country vaccinated or you know with a clear medical exemption. Right. It's a matter of math, though. Do you agree with me? It's it's mathematical. It's not about it's not about you're going to be exhausted for the final, which is just a completely overplayed trope in tennis. About I don't know. Anyway, we've seen so many guys have physical semifinals and win the finals. So many. Yeah, I agree. And mathematical in that, you just have to play two instead of one. Like exactly. That, that's, yeah, I, yeah. you just play two good players. Agree with you there. I'm, no, you know what? Now, what am I going to let you go free? No. Give me your prediction. Who you got right? I said, no, you know what? Let's wait for Djokovic. We're going to wait for 25 minutes for the breaking <laughs> Thank news. You. Thank I'll you. just bring you back on during the show and ask you for it as we go. It's too hard to make a prediction until you know whether he's going to be in the draw or not. And so, sure. you know what? I've matured. I don't force you into those things anymore, my friend. Maybe that's just how excited I am to join three, that I'm like, I don't want to screw that up in any <laughs> sort of fashion. But all right, with all of that said, talk to me about your coverage plans for this Australian Open. What can we expect from you over the next couple of weeks? I like to give you exclusives about my content. I told you that. Why are you kidding? I, I am the leading a... source on Gil Gross Media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
You you break all the yeah you're all clearly it. I don't know who the hell is leaking. This but... just in: Gilgross Media Group uses Jenna Fink's expenses as a write-off in the taxes. <laughs> Story at eleven. <laughs> I'm uh I'm strongly considering doing a, a little thirty-minute live daily pre-first ball. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, but other than that. I uh, I like to do the the post match videos. Just again, it's intended to just uh, quickly, without watching the replay, without using any footage, without using any real like uh, post statistical stuff. Go through the match, analyze the match. Um, I will be doing probably a couple of mailbags, and uh, follow me on Twitter at Gil underscore Gross. Can I count on you one a week? First week, second week, one mini break. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I might even pre- – I'd say the over-under is two and a half. Like that's 100% <laughs> what Action Network has the line set at. But always a pleasure to get the chance to chat, my friend. Obviously appreciate all you do at Monday Match Analysis, all you do at 3, a tennis show, and appreciate following your work on Twitter as well, even if you have now seriously lapped me in the follower count. With all of that said, this is just one of many preview podcasts we have available for all of you at Crack Rackets, I believe, and I want to make sure I have my guests right, Americans with Jeff Sackman, men's contenders here with Gil. Who are we doing women's contenders with? I want to say, oh, Nina Pantic on Friday, David Kane for the women's dark horses, uh, Chris Otto for the men's dark horses, I believe Jamie McDonald for the draws, but that's still to be determined. We're going to have some fun with all of our preview content as we try to cover all of the angles here on the Great Shot podcast feed. Of course, we're covering all of the daily results happening in Australia over on the Mini Break podcast feed, as well as all of our news developments in the Djokovic story. Well, you look like you had something to say. Is this going to be, is this pod going to be like when something tragic happens or like a new president is elected, for example, where 20 years from now, it's going to be like, where were you? Well, remember we were on a pod, like we were doing... <laughs> We're doing great shot pod. We're doing Do a mini break. What percentage of my of my sentences nowadays start? Well, I was on a podcast with X. <laughs> like I would say it's at least thirty, and I'm not proud of it. Again, the worst thing at the bar is when I'm like, "You guys don't want to talk Arizona State five singles," and it's just a comprehensive no, and it's like, "Well, then I should leave." Um, Dude, but yeah, at Syracuse, the first game, the first basketball game I ever called for WAER, um. Trump got impeached. It was like, like right as I started to go on there, Trump got impeached. The second game I ever did, unfortunately, Kobe died. The third game, um, the third game was, uh, I, I don't remember, but it was, it was three in a row, massive stories. No, it's yeah. It was weird. I, mean, I, I can imagine you like, this let's impeach this three-point performance from the Syracuse men today <laughs> as it's just atrocious. By the way, in political news, Donald Trump— I learned, I learned on the air from someone doing an update right before I was, like, coming out of a break. Did they give you—did you give a live they reaction did like, not... oh, <laughs> this is a dark day for our nation? No, but I would have liked a heads-up from the producer— <laughs> I mean, literally, it was like Trump got impeached. Now back to Gil Gross, and I'm just like, what? Like, I had to be like, cue up seven, twelve forty six to go in the first. Yeah. We go to our political correspondent on the grounds here next to me. So 
Your thoughts. Uh, did you expect Pete Meyer to vote yes for the House Republicans? Yeah, well, thanks for asking, Gil. And as here, little Bayheim makes a three. Um, yeah, I can only imagine balancing that broadcast. That had to have been fun. All of that said, again, where was I plugging? I was plugging something. Oh, all of our pod- preview podcasts here available on the Great Shot podcast feed, available on the website crackedrackets.com. Of course, all of the podcasts, mini break, cracked interviews, this podcast, YouTube channel, like, rate, subscribe, review, share with your friends if you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at A.L. Gruskin. A shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. That right there is how I know you've never made it to the end of an episode, because that is a staple of our Cracked Rackets shows, my friend. You're busted. Uh, but with all of that said for... My fantastic co-host today, Gil Gross, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I am your host, Alex Gruskin. Gil, what do we tell our listeners? Hey, great shot. Oh, we you said you this. said any tone I want. I and could I had my pick. I didn't expect Alto. That was delightful. <laughs> Thank you, my friend, as always. We'll talk soon. <laughs>